Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And after closing my previous podcast with Warren Zevon's great song, Keep Me in Your Heart for a While, well, it got me to thinking about some of the people who were, well, they were there for us back in the 1950s and 1960s when psychedelic chemicals were just being introduced to a wider audience, uh, as were some psychedelic plants as well. And I thought that, well, every once in a while, we should keep them in our hearts for a while as well. So if you've had a chance to listen to some of my earlier programs from here in the salon, then you'll remember the interviews with Gary Fisher and Myron Stolaroff, among others, both of whom began researching psychedelics as early as the 1950s. And of course, I've played dozens of talks by Dr. Timothy Leary as well. And as you know, uh, from some of those podcasts, these early pioneers didn't always see eye to eye about what the others were doing. So it was really fascinating when, in February of 1979, some of these pioneers got together and talked about what went right and what went wrong back when LSD was an as yet relatively untested drug. What I'm about to play for you is the audio track of a video recording of this gathering that you can watch on archive.org. And I'll put a link to that in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. It's a truly interesting video, and I hope that you get a chance to watch it. But even if you don't see the video, I believe that you will get a lot out of listening to this casual banter between, well, some people who are legendary today, but who were all peers back then and at times were even close to adversaries. In the video, we see Timothy Leary sitting on a small sofa with Oscar Janiger on his left and Al Hubbard on his right. To Janiger's left is Humphrey Osmond. To the right of Hubbard is Sidney Cohen and Myron Stolaroff. The recording begins with Al Hubbard and Timothy Leary talking, and later, when you hear someone with a slight British accent, well, that's Humphrey Osmond. So, let's join them now, and as we do... Why don't you try to imagine that you are one of the other people in the room who are listening in on these elders as they interact with one another in a friendly and relaxed manner. And then keep in mind that these people aren't all that different from you. And, in fact, you no doubt could have fit right in there yourself. You never didn't know that kind of that. That's my second I was one that received it for you. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'll thank you. I Well, what did you do for it? Interstitial in the box of marijuana, snuff box, well, we'll give him 30 years for it. Yeah. That's a good one. Sure. Early one. Well, well, anyway, anyway I hope to be able to do something. You were acting in his behalf. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, don't give up. Because I've done 44 months on, I'm still out of my So listen, don't give up. <laughs> the case, the game's still alive, you know. That'll be something. I need you now more than ever. Hey, what is right when I learned the parole board. Listen. When did you two guys meet? Oh, 20, 30 years ago. That was most 20 years ago. What? You, you were was about Didn't you say that you introduced Tim to CO2? Yeah, so that's right. That's right. He dragged us all around Boston with these tanks, and we had people loading in the tanks, and he had us all strapped with the. Well, it's still the best stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. 
Never go to a different place. way to get it again. <laughs> well, I'd like to say, uh, just in general, I'm taking more SB now than I ever have before, at least once a week. And I find that uh, it's working better than ever. <laughs> it's a tonic, isn't it? Uh, yeah. You look very well. The new experimental forms are even better, so. Yeah? Uh, I just wanted to get some attention. <laughs> <laughs> That's the commercial. Well, now we can go back to the prime time program. I must just fly around that because otherwise, if I don't do this, I'll be killed. Well, listen, so what has it done actually through all the years? A great clarity, a great clarity of vision, a great clarity of mind. We've never seen it, we've been better off. Great perception. Oh, well, I don't. Oh, I owe everything to you. I think you would have. I think you would have. Galactic Center sent you down just at the right moment. Yeah. The great disturbance. Do well, yeah. She likes disturbance. Well, gentlemen, what do you think is going to happen to it all, really? Do you think we, no, do you think we're going to get it back in some form that we might be able to use it effectively or under proper control or what have you? You're talking about bureaucracy and government? Uh, My wife and I use more or less now than we ever, than I ever did in the past, and sensible people are still doing it. And what happens in Sacramento or in Washington or in Peking or in Saigon has never affected us and never will. But you certainly warn them out. There's no use in bothering you anymore. What? There's no use in bothering you anymore. I don't mind being bothered. Uh, <laughs> oh, you seem to be indestructible. <laughs> well, when you started with it all, Al, Al yes, I mean, yes. Al did, but you started with it all. I mean, you know, you, you had some kind of a purpose or vision in mind then, didn't you? Uh, I still got it. Yeah, well, and you... I'm in my mind. And you're responsible for carrying it, you know, you're the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. <laughs> you know, planting it every way you got a chance. Well, you know? I, yeah. I sure did, but... Uh -huh. I don't think it was a credit thing. It was a credit. I think something yeah. should have been done, and I tried to do it, and I'm still trying to do it. Yeah. Okay. And what? Why? Why, Al? Why are you trying to do it? I don't know. What are you, What are you doing it for? Well, I don't know. Just I think it's a thing to do. <coughs> what else could an old guy my age do? It's worth it, doing. <laughs> hmm. You're looking for some sort of motives, no, I guess. No, 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 no. What I'm looking like for... Freudian motives? No, no, no. Political not, motives? No, no, no. I was just wondering... Economic motives? Or no, no, no. I was wondering because <laughs> I thought that Al had some really personal interest that, that had reflected something in his own experience. It cost me a couple hundred thousand dollars. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that's a good motive or not. Not just my friends, what I call them. They all contributed freely or willingly or unwillingly they contributed. <laughs> what do you think its best use is for now, Al? Hmm? I don't know, just keep on doing it. Just to keep on waking people up, let them see what themselves for what they are. I think old Carter could stand a good dose of it. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe maybe Brown maybe Brown from the Pentagon turn her in and do him a world of good. Don't sit in here, so I'll Oh yeah, I'll pop there, don't worry, Tim. Yeah. I carried out my but I do wish I do wish you'd stop scooping that. Stop getting in bad. Getting what? Getting in bad. Bad. Well everything's worked out. Very well. Very well. I'm very respectable. I like that. Uh, new Rolling Stones, you know, a uh, song about talk, talking heroin with the president. We're so respectable. We're so unobjectionable. <laughs> Nobody's bothering me. Are they bothering you? Don't bother. Nothing bothers me. I don't see anyone in this couch that looks being bothered. If something gets on my back, I get it all. <laughs> Bill Harmon says uh, there's a nice way to do it. I don't know what the nice way is. Hi, uh, Bill. You say you can be gentle about it. It's your quote, man, so I'll leave it with you. <laughs> 
Well, I'm very gentle. We were just remembering the first time we met, which is in Cambridge, uh, uh, in, in 19, on the night of the Kennedy election. 1960. In 1960, we, we went out to this place, uh, and T Timothy then was wearing his uh, grey flannel suit and his crew cut, and we had this very interesting uh, uh, discussion with him. And when we went, I don't think I ever told you this, Timothy, but when I, we went away, uh, we both said, uh, what a nice fellow he is. And he said, he's a very nice man, and, I, and, and Aldous said, it's very, very nice to think this is work's going to be done at Harvard. He said, it'd be so good for it. And then, and then, and then I said to Aldous, I said, I think he's a very nice fellow too, but don't you think he, that he's just a little bit square? <laughs> and Aldous, Aldous, Aldous said, you may well be right. He said, he said that after all, isn't that what we want? <laughs> When, when I'm, when I'm discussing the need for understanding human temperament, this is the story I tell. Because I said, here are all this and I, both deeply interested in the nature of human temperament, and we meet someone who I think that was probably the least satisfactory description of you ever made. I think even your greatest enemies would never make that description. And we made it. We were very, very concerned because we felt that you were perhaps a bit too unadventurous. You see what insights we had. <laughs> well, you sure, you sure as heck contributed your part. But uh, I've always considered myself very square. Yeah. So we were right in a way. Where we I always try to hang around the hippest person in the area. And uh, <laughs> continue to do that. Because uh, I feel that I, I really basically feel I'm square and I have very little sense of aesthetic. So I try to hang around the most sophisticated, beautiful people in the world. So hope some it will radiate off on me. Yo, 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 I have yo. other qualities. You see all career in the sense of self-improvement right, and the sort of Horatio Alves No, it was, it, it, it was one, one of the most monumental ill-judgments. But it was very, very interesting. We had, we had a very good evening, but uh, we were not able to drink anything because, because apparently the laws in Massachusetts are such that when an election's on, no one's allowed to drink because of fear that you would corrupt the voters. Well, all these concepts of, uh, of the, you know, high concepts of political, this or that, I think uh, someone in Rome, I used to say to Sydney all the time, I felt that I was much more conservative than you, Sydney, because I didn't want the government involved in any of our business. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a pretty free enterprise, <laughs> staunch. <laughs> we seem to have followed our own paths. <laughs> you yours, me mine, he his. <laughs> Fortunately, since they didn't go in the same direction, a great deal of ground was covered. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess uh, one of the things Oscar might be interested in is what does it all mean and how is it all going to work out and all that sort of thing. And I wonder whether, I know I couldn't possibly evaluate. Yeah. Anyone, any, anybody want to try? <laughs> I was really interested in your opinion. Well, I think, it, it, as you heard, it stirred people up. It cracked their frame of reference uh, by the thousands, millions perhaps. And um, anything that does that is pretty good, I think. Uh, anything that shakes people up a little, not too much. Uh, some people maybe it shook up a little too much. That was unfortunate. But uh, in the totality, it may have been a desirable thing at that point in time. Uh, the next question would be, well, what's going to happen? And there I think we will see, not soon, but uh, in X number of years, a recrudescence of similar usage here, there, and everywhere. It's happened throughout history, hasn't it? So don't you think that the, the, the other very important thing is it's the, t the, the actual time this has happened. To begin with, as you point out, it's very good for people to be shaken up a certain amount. So far on the whole, our ways of shaking ourselves up have usually to have real uh, um, cataclysms. I mean, for instance, the Iranians are being shaken up at the moment. It would appear that many of them might prefer not to be in this kind of way. Because the difficulty with having these great, the great cataclysms is that you, you end up worse than you began. 
the, the, if one could be able to have a sort of controlled capitalism from time to time, we'd be much better off because we, every society gets set in its ways and a society with a vast technology is always likely to get to the point when it's simpler and easier and comfier to um, let the technology take over. And one of the things it seems to me that these substances and the attitudes they generate very well is that one becomes less willing to do that because it's not necessary. You, 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 are able, you don't have to look upon your technology as your idol. And it, it's, very, it's, it's easy to do this. And it's particularly easy to do this if you've got no way out. It's easy uh, the, the, if, you, if, you, if you're able sort of to separate yourself. So you think that uh, in days to come as we become more constricted and more uh, homogenized that it may be even more necessary to have such... Much more necessary. But I think it's still very necessary because uh, we, we, we are so clever at, at building the, all these strange and remarkable things. And, and uh, the, But then the thing that we stop being clever is that we're very liable then uh, to make ourselves in our own image. I mean, it's extremely interesting, the image of the things we've made, rather. It's very interesting that the, the mind described by... Uh, Thomas Willis in 1670 was of a kind of mirror and the reason why he described that the mirror was an extremely fashionable new invention then the, 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 the mind that Freud described if you remember was a magic lantern yeah, that's why projection comes from I mean, this was the latest thing now the mind was an indoor plumbing system then the mind became a telephone exchange then it became a kind of television thing and I gather the latest thing to say it's a hologram now the only thing that we know is it's none of those things the fact is that we've invented all those things and it's apparently a thing we always do now, now, uh, now, as long as we don't take it too seriously, but, but it seems to me one of the things that these substances and the techniques you learn from them is they help you not to take it seriously. Now, they, they, with, with the other people, uh, with other peoples, that, they, that none of them have, have ever managed to make, it seems to me, such an, in, an intrusive technology as we've made. It, it's always been much more difficult. Our technology is, is sort of marvelously able to do things which would have uh, only tyrants could have done otherwise. Only tyrants could produce vast entertainments for themselves. We get vast entertainments for ourselves whether we want it or not. And, and it's, uh, therefore we need to have way, ways of dealing with it. I think Aldous was uh, completely right in uh, both, in both uh, the, his moralities in, in Brave New World and in uh, part of Ireland that uh, our needs now are very great and since it doesn't seem to me that we're likely to, to dis-technicalize ourselves because even if we wanted to do this, if we were able to do this, I don't think we can, but suppose we were, no one else is going to do this. So the result of our, our sort of removing ourselves from the pastoral life would be that someone would come over and take over the continent, they'd be bound to. But it would be it would be too much of a temptation for uh, for anyone w with a, a technology in being to see us like the, uh, the say the Americas in 1492. Oh yeah, listen, can I interrupt just one yeah. second? You you mentioned in the names. Uh, has it been done yet? I think we should uh, uh, say hello to Aldous Huxley. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and to Gerald Hurd, yes, we should. Uh, and Alan Watts. And to Alan yeah. Watts, who is the most underestimated yeah. of all the philosophers of our time, and uh, they're here with us. And uh, and to say hello to Art Chandler, by the way. All right, hello, Art. Remember Art? It's been going back a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And those of us in those days, uh, I don't know that we fancied what we were heading into. Maybe we might have been willing to call a halt then at the time. But somehow, <laughs> you know, we were we were really getting into some things that, uh, from different directions, everybody was finding their own way. And I'd like to say, does, yeah. any, does anyone here feel that, mis that mistakes were made? What mistakes were made? 
Well, uh, Timothy, estimations in retrospect are in principle unsaid. It's really like the chaps, you know, who when the, the, the generals of World War II have large numbers of fellows who were not born at that time, who write interestingly accounts of how the Battle of the Bulge might have been better fought. <laughs> it, it's only well, that's easy. wonderful. It, it's only too easy. Everyone's going to write their own sure. cosmology. That's <laughs> but, but I mean, I think that... The world was made in seven days, but where and when? But I, but I, I think that those sort of things... Uh, um, one could identify the same mistakes. Well, I say you could have seen other ways of doing it. My God, quantum physics yeah. now tells us that in any second it can go in how many different ways? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of the lessons. Uh, well, that was a mistake made. Nobody gave it to Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> well, in order to know whether mistakes were made, you have to know what the goal is. And if you can define a goal, I can tell you whether mistakes were made. I think mistakes were made. But that's my own personal goal. Well, I'll say one of the goals was to make uh, the American people smarter, raise intelligence. And right. I think the American people today are quantum jumps more sophisticated in exactly the general directions in which we uh, all hope they would become more sophisticated. About consciousness, about the nervous system, about the brain, about the options people mm -hmm. have in creating their own realities, about self-actualization, self-indulgence, about uh, pleasure being a self-reward as opposed to high reward. My God! Uh, pleasure is now the number one industry in this country. <coughs> Recreational travel, uh, entertainment, uh, sensory indulgence. Oh my God, so now, you know, no question about that number one. Now, that was my goal. <laughs> in this case, you, may, you, you certainly made an advance towards it. Let me put the slightly contrary point of view. <laughs> this is we, we, we have the, 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 awkward, the, the awkward thing that we now have chaps like the Ayatollah Khomeini appearing on the scene but rather di we, 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 who have the potential of rather different goals. And, uh, and certainly from where, where I do, which you know very well, in, in the South, these, di these other different goals are always potential. All right, Pakistan is now going backwards. We're going to yeah. cut off uh, ha hands for the first uh, robbery and foot for the second. Uh, Iran is now going back to... Uh, no, no, you know the interesting point uh, about uh, Tenth, don't you? The Afghanistan is now... No, no, Pakistan is going to do this, but they haven't been able to get the doctors to do it. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> I think, is extremely interesting. One thing I've learned from the criminal justice situation, there'll always be someone to lop the hands off. They've got to lop them off now in a way, and they haven't been able to do that. What was your point, Jim? Yeah. About... But, oh, my point. Yeah. Uh, about the Ayatollah? And I still haven't been able to levitate that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Tim said that he was quite successful in achieving his goals. Yeah. Well, and I think he's a little presumptuous. Yeah. <laughs> well, who's my, my goals? I, I'm not simply talking about my goals. That's right. I'm the presumptuous. Uh, everything yeah, they say he's, not, he's, he's optimistic, not presumptuous, and he ought to be optimistic. I mean, it's his natural bent. Yeah. Yeah. But since we all live in these uh, yeah. bubbles that we create, uh, we can only uh, basically. Uh, um, Give ourselves our own report cards at the That's end right. of every uh, and so forth. Take credit for that which we didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't, well, uh, credit, no, I take no credit uh, or blame, but uh, we we're talking about goals. See, that's different, isn't it? Credit and blame gets. Uh, it's another interesting topic. So, then how would you like to have seen it done? Yeah. Suppose the scenario had been played as you'd like. Well, I don't put as high a stock on pleasure, although I enjoy it, as Tim does. Uh, I, I would hope that um, increased human wisdom might have been an appropriate goal. Increased human humaneness. This I don't quite see as ha occurring. I don't think we're any wiser. Some of us may be. Uh, and... Uh, Maybe if only a few of us are wiser, that's enough. That's sufficient unto the end. <laughs> um, At this point, I would like to apologize to you, Sidney. Uh, you were right in most of our debates when you were insisting upon... Uh, uh, <laughs> I want a copy of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, because you were uh, insisting upon more scientific rigor, and you were emphasizing intelligence, where I was emphasizing consciousness. 
Now, I think I was robot programmed to do that, so I don't regret doing it, but uh, it was like, uh, it was in the third quarter of a game we played once in the Houston Astrodome, when you, you know, uh, several times, you definitely uh, were saying things. I remember you were quoted in the New York Times after one of our debates as one of the quotes of the week. And it said that you didn't believe that we should be encouraging the evolution of a new species of primates that went around smelling flowers. Remember that quote? I don't remember it. Roughly something like that. And uh, you were right. I don't know whether I was right now. Come to think of it. Tim, you know, you and I had an agreement once, too. The last time I saw you, <laughs> you know, we, we have our differences of view and... Um, and we were uh, we were a little disturbed that some of the things you were doing and planning would make it more difficult. In fact, even at the time I saw you, it was making it more difficult to carry on legitimate research. And we agreed, you know, if you remember that, well, Myron, you stay in there and uh, you do the le legitimate research, but you need somebody to kind of shake them up a bit. You so I'll shake them up, and then you can you can take them and, and, and show them the, where they can learn what the right path is. But I didn't know that when you're going to shake them up, you're going to hit them on the head with a ball bag. <laughs> well, I don't accept that <laughs> I have had this experience four times in the last 15 years, 20 years. I was one of the... Um, uh, younger members of that incredible revolution led by Benjamin Spock, Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, Rollo May, uh, Harry Stack Sullivan, and none of us would be in this room if it hadn't been for the work of these uh, people who are essentially giving conscious psychology back somehow to, uh, to uh, human access, taking it away from experts, so that I definitely feel that I'm a product of that group which was essentially a totally American point of view in psychology. They were giving us an American psychology of do-it-yourself, trust your own impulse, you're out there in the frontier, you're having trouble out there, you can't call a being psychiatrist and so forth. And then in the 60s we had um, the, uh, um, the same situation. Uh, I went farther out in those days than Carl uh, 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 Rogers did. When we were at Harvard in that, in that 50s revolution and so forth, we were giving away the answers to intelligence tests. <laughs> we were giving away the answers to personality tests. We were doing everything in our power to, because we felt that the psychiatry of the time was making people more helpless instead of giving them... So uh, we were in a lot of trouble at Harvard, you know, uh, reversing roles. There was Charlie Slack who was paying... He was paying patients more money than he was paying the uh, graduate students. That's one example of hundreds of uh, role reversals in psychology before drugs. And the drug thing came along, and I made several. Dis I had several discussions with Sydney and with you and with uh, everyone, saying, and with you too, I saying, uh, let us be the far out explorers, and the farther out we go the more ground it gives uh, the people at Spring Grove to denounce us. So we were like your flanker backs or whatever it is. And we were the, uh, f yeah, very Yeah, and I never felt for a second, the hundreds of times that we debated, anything but this uh, wise affection from you, Sydney, that we were somehow, to the best of our abilities, um, working for human freedom as we saw it, or playing uh, so that... Uh, and I felt that um, the particular robot role that I was playing then was to, uh, and I never knew, we never knew what we were doing you know, in any clear, precise sense, uh, but it seemed always right to us. Then I had the third experience. I was in Folsom Prison when the notion, when I began to understand that space colonization was the same issue, that the notion of going into space had been taken over by NASA, by the Pentagon, by uh, the Soviets, and again, it was the, I wrote, I wrote uh, Professor uh, O'Neill at Princeton, a letter saying, well, my friend, this is the third time I've been through this, and I'm telling you that I'm going to popularize space migration in the next two or three years, because it's got to be, uh, you know, people in general have got to, a new generation, young uh, people in, in college, young physicist students, and young sociologists have got to realize that some of the big issues ahead are the control of space got to be taken away from the, you know, the, the good guy, bad guys, who are always the Pentagon and so forth. And um, now there's a fourth, uh, fourth, uh, there's a fourth time involved in a situation like this. Genetics, uh, the DNA code, and that sort of thing is more important for the next decade, as the brain was, who was going to control the brain in the uh, late 60s and 70s. Now, I, I always see my role as the same. I wrote the same letter to Edward Wilson. 
the very same uh, message that uh, you know, same discussion that I had, and once in a parking lot with you in uh, Palo Alto, and I wrote Professor Wilson of Harvard. You know, he wrote sociobiology, his new book on human nature, very interesting stuff. I said, look, <laughs> the fourth time, I'm going to do everything in my power to popularize the DNA code, uh, Gaia, wisdom, egg intelligence, genetics, genetic cast, structural cast, and so forth. And I'm going to take it too far. It's going to be radical sociobiology. <laughs> but I'm not interested in persuading uh, the full professors, the full scientists. I'm going to be talking to the undergraduates and to the high school students, and I'm going to be outrageous, and I'm going to suggest the possibilities of genetic um, research so that in five or ten years, when they will have had their PhDs and their MDs and so forth, uh, they'll, you know, because it always happens, it's called neoteny, you always have to send the message to the, the sexually active pre-adults, and then they will figure out what's right and what's good from all that, and then they'll go ahead and perform it for the functions of society that I have the next generation. So that uh, I see it all as an incredible loving hookup of people playing different roles, and I've never complained or never explained uh, that I know of uh, about being mistreated, and I, I don't think so. Uh, and I, I, just, I just wish, I hope, that we all understand that we've all been playing parts that have been assigned to us and uh, uh, there's no uh, good guy, bad guy, or more credit or blame or whatever. You were uh, what Gerald Hurd would have said, uh, you were on the cutting edge of things and that's probably where you belong. Tim, I don't think I congratulate you on writing one one book. I don't know if everyone here has read Timothy's be uh, his escape book. It's one of the very good escape books. <laughs> it, it was uh, Bantams rather foolishly, I think, uh, over-publicized it and didn't get the thing going the right way. But it's, a, it's one of the best escape stories I've ever read. I'm something of an aficionado of escape stories. And it's one of the very, very good ones. Not as good as Papillon. <laughs> no, but it's true. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Papillon gives you the, 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 the feeling that it was being written for a movie. And unfortunately, yours hasn't been made into a movie, but it's, 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 a, it's a very good one. Well, I tried to sell the rights before the escape, but Hollywood wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that, that, that would be the best possible move. The movie coming out before you escape. Yeah, uh, when the weatherman came up in a car after I escaped, I knew it was the weatherman, and I turned and I, they, they had fat, false passports, they had false clothes. I said, didn't you videotape this, you fools? <laughs> and they didn't know. Well, well, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great tribute to Oscar. How would you like to have seen it go? And I want to know how Al would have liked to have seen it go, because I think that what we're uh, in here, one has a sort of uh, a, 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 a temperamental uh, uh, network or, or grid system in which people were seeing the same thing through somewhat different lenses. Well, I think we need people like Tim and Al. Uh, they're absolutely necessary to get out, way out, too far out, in fact, uh, in order to move, uh, move things around. And we need people like you to be reflective about it and to study it. And, uh, and little by little, a, a slight movement is made in the totality. So, you know, I, I can't think of how it could have worked out otherwise. Uh, I must confess that when I studied LSD and then I heard that it was getting out on the streets, I said, this will never sell. It's too intense. People will, will be too shook up. But it, it didn't work that way at all. I'm not quite sure I know why, but apparently people were able to sustain it, uh, this intense uh, response. So my uh, record as a prophet is about one down. Well, and aren't so, you right, though, if you take a longer-range view, because from what I know, maybe I'm not well enough informed, but it's not a popular street drug anymore the way it once was. I think a fair number of people are take, still taking LSD, don't you think? Yeah, but the stuff on the street, you can't call that LSD. 
That's not her list. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> 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 Al, 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 perhaps you haven't been assiduous enough in getting the good stuff. I can't believe you, you failed to find the good stuff. You well, no, because I have 4,000 bottles of it to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> You're in the position of a man with an excellent seller who isn't going around looking at the new things because I never sold them. You're not looking at the recent vintages. <laughs> you see how they're coming along. Well, well, do you think the hippie movement would have come about without LSD or had its impact? I think that would be a totally different impact. Wouldn't it? What? It would be a totally different impact. <clears throat> I don't think it would be much less. I, I, I think it was a necessary uh, condition for it, really. What about heroin? Do you think we would have had a heroin epidemic without LSD? I don't think it has any bearing on this, uh, Dr. Cohen. Mm, may have had some bearing. I think it had some bearing. But, uh, well, it's like saying when you have well, a CB, a CB thing, uh, when you're giving people <laughs> the, the concept of self-actualization, yeah. they can do things that formerly only experts can do naturally. Yeah. Yeah. They're be, well, uh, there's, there's other drugs. You have a guy, Prince, making an atom bomb. <laughs> Tim, there's other drugs. There's at least 15 others that act entirely differently. Yeah. It would still come out that no one's ever said anything about that we've isolated in the last 10, 12 years that are far more remarkable than LSD. Mm -hmm. They really tell you which, which way you're going. All, that, all the harmaline compounds and ayahuasca and all that stuff, we've got all that. I think another person we ought to mention uh, as not being here but here is John Lilly. Yeah. Well, he will be. He will be. Oh, he will be. Yes, yes. he'll be here shortly. John what a courageous and Laura person, will be huh? Here. She'll be here shortly. So everybody took their chances, I'll tell you that. In some ways, I think that John, uh, you know, we all work within the ranges and so forth, John has gone so far and taken such risks uh, that I just think he's He'll be there when you get there. Ah, uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, Tim, I think everybody took risks in their own way, you know. Oh, I know. Not just uh, flying around in the stratosphere one, yeah. or, you know, or standing there time in tanks and the other. But there were people who were really working in areas that were very frightening and sometimes uh, very awesome to them, and trying to integrate that and still move along and do what they had to do. And I, I think people like, like Art Chandler and so on, and Bill McLaughlin, Ron Siegel and others I look around the room have had the, you know to walk out on a very very long narrow plank too and look around and uh, in their way I, I think brought back some very good things you know I, I think you know it's an interesting thing too as you go around the country I'm sure you all have experience you talk to uh, middle-aged, fairly respectable people in Tucson, Arizona, and they said, this is where the acid thing really happened. <laughs> Tucson. In San Francisco, this is where it really happened. The Lower East Side, you know, they said, that's where it really happened. And uh, yeah. the, uh, no one has ever really um, uh, told us what was going on in Los Angeles during those uh, years. I think much more was done down here. There was a much wider range. There were more doctors involved. There were more scientists involved. We had Gerald and Aldous. Yes, right, right yeah. And uh, Ivan, uh, was, uh, then, uh, of course, it was part of the coolness of the Los Angeles uh, cell, whatever you want to call it, that they kept a, <coughs> you kept a... Uh, well, you might not call it a cell, let's call it a cluster. <laughs> <laughs> Our undercover agents in Los Angeles were very cool about, uh, uh, and yet they did more in a very uh, laid-back way. Uh, and it's never been as public public as uh, some of the other, yeah. you know, the buses running around the country. Yeah, and then Zinberg that. says that the visionary experience and all the things he was doing at Harvard and the others, his residents and the rest that he was giving LSD to, they never had a visionary or ecstatic or mystic experience, but the whole thing was a California invention. He said, and he said, and the well, only time it ever happened right. was when you crossed the Colorado River. <laughs> you know, I'm reading John Mark's book on um, yeah. the Manchurian, uh, Search for the Manchurian yes. Candidate, in which he says that uh, the CIA turned us all on. 
you know. Well, that's uh, a but idea too. <laughs> it, uh, I'd like to get your opinion uh, of what started it. Was it Aldous Huxley's dose of perception? Was it Tim Leary? What got a, what made the mass uh, use of uh, psychedelics uh, come on? Would you say? Well, no, see, we have to mention the name of Ken Kesey, and of course, Allen Ginsberg was a. Allen Ginsberg was an indefatigable Zionist politician for drugs, and they. Uh, uh, so, but they, at the very beginning, what would you say? What turned you on, Ken? I don't remember. And Gordon Watts, don't ever underestimate the effect of that wonderful, respectable uh, far banker. out mind. Yes, <laughs> in Life magazine, there is a banker, Morgan Garrett. Morgan Guarantee Trust banker lying on the mud hut of a Mexican, uh, you know, saying wonderful, wonderful. Oh boy, talk about Joe Namath uh, commercial. <laughs> Sid, we ran close to a thousand people through, and these, each of these people, were people that had considerable influence in their own right, and they were bringing the message out. Who turned on Cary Grant? So uh, someone in this room, <laughs> but I mean, Cary uh, Grant, Hartman, 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 and then I, I saw him a few times. Yeah. But we each of us had, and so this thing was just moving geometrically from people who had large audiences themselves, and the rate of the way inquiries were coming in was geometric after a while, and obviously, it, it, uh, if that continued. These people who then couldn't get it from us anymore would be seeking to get it elsewhere. Yeah. And it was that kind of a proportion that was taking place. That was, and keeping in mind, because that was just uh, a, a relatively small ripple in a larger pond, but it was, it was carrying a lot of impetus with it. And, and that might have been one of those things, and then those enclaves joining other enclaves and, and so on. Uh, but. I think you're referring to the big explosion, or the, uh, well, the big explosion uh, yeah. was when it came yeah. out on, yeah. the, on the cover story on all the popular magazines, right. Life, Life, Saturday yeah, Evening Post, yeah. and the, the whole yeah. business that we're back. Yeah. That we're all well, Alice's book, Doris of Deception, Head and Hell, were extremely important among intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. and Frank Barron was another person who was uh, very active in the psychology. Uh, of course, it was Albert Hoffman who did it all anyway. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. yeah. Your question, I think, really is directed at. Uh, where did the young people get it? Because that's where the movement started that really spread it yes. across the country. What do you think about Robert Duroff? That had a lot of effect where I was. In fact, I was very surprised when I saw he the second, second, the second of the county chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't that drugs in the mind have a lot of effect yeah. on campuses and yeah. stuff like that? It did. But it was more than just a book or two. It, it was something in the wind. And I, mm. I really... One first major burst yeah. of publicity is that what you're uh, trying to uh, to uh, focus on? Is that the? the well, there were steps all the way. Yeah. Huxley was yeah. the one of the first. Uh, after we were fired from Harvard, that that mm -hmm. fall, every major magazine came out with a. Uh, yeah. It was a, a cover story in the Saturday Evening Post. Yeah. The yeah. 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 There were three uh, different stories in Playboy, uh, uh, and so that was yeah. It was the firing from a Harvard plus. The fact that Henry Luce was somewhere always uh, behind the scenes doing certain things. Uh, plus, so many people have been involved in, in Los Angeles and so forth. But that was the first big problem. Tim was more responsible than anybody for yeah, that. Tim, wasn't it the calculated goal of FF to cause that kind of spreading? Yeah. I, I remember coming coming to Cambridge one time when a little article in Time came out. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. And I walked in there and he said, what do you think about the Time article? It was really devastatingly bad. For LSD. I thought it was terrible, I said. Yeah. Tim said, we thought it was great. You'd let, you'd, you'd let the, the kids know that uh, there's something here. They'll know it, you know. It doesn't make a difference whether it's bad, good, or indifferent. It's well, I want to thing. point out, though, that the picture, who we all know who's here and now, study pictures more than they do uh, long uh, columns. The particular picture of this article in Time Magazine attacking our research had a scientific instrument called the uh, experiential typewriter with all these dials actually filled with socks, but that's all right. It had an incredibly beautiful young woman sitting, taking the test, and it had standing behind her Alan Watts, a beautiful female Hindu guru named Gayatri Devi, and myself. Now, the, uh, the, the signal content of a picture like that was much more important 
<laughs> and then uh, the little words were being written by uh, some clerk at Time Magazine in the medical department. <laughs> How about McLuhan? Now, I'm trying to think well, that what else could happen in a person's life that a shot from a religious conversion that can fire them up with the sort of zeal that we saw in the few people that we began to use it with. In other words, perhaps not everybody went it's out. Psychosis. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was a contagion. It was yes. certainly a contagion. Contagious psychosis. It was a contagion. It, it was. It was a chance. It was a chance for everyone to go to the carnival all at once. You know. Okay. And they all they all came out of that place and they were ready to really spread the word. I'll tell you, they had had the sacrament, and that's how they behaved in those days. Now, that's a pretty irresistible force in terms of public uh, diffusion of, of information, information. And that was the, the kind of zeal that we experienced. There's people yeah. in this room right now, if yeah. we decided to do anything in the next six months, yeah. uh, that was really right. Yeah. You know, it was right. It had to be, you know, we could do it. I'm not so sure, you know, it's amazing how many times the same mistakes are repeated. Uh, when I first came to Los Angeles, I was working uh, with Murray Jarvik, who's over here. And uh, we, were setting up, we were setting up some LSD studies to do it, and with marijuana and a few other drugs. And uh, Allen Ginsberg came by the lab to visit me one day, showed Allen around. And as he was leaving the lab, one of the administrators in the building, so over UCLA, saw him and allegedly saw someone smoking a joint in his entourage. On the basis of that, there was a big flap. And uh, it was like another Harvard psilocybin fiasco on a much smaller scale. There was absolutely no uh, truth to any of the charges or anything, but uh, you know, it, was an it was an uncomfortable situation, anyone wanting to do research with these drugs, yeah. even though there was authorization, yeah. there was all the DEA forms, there was all the yeah. necessary uh, uh, precautions that were taken according to law. There's a, a lot of resistance to doing those things. And uh, I've encountered that again and again in every university I've gone to trying to set up these studies. Uh, and if you, it takes a year and a half of paper, I think Murray took us a year and a half of paperwork I think to, we're, we're in the dark ages. To get, the, to get our proposal approved, finally. Drug research of that type. And the one thing they kept on coming down, they didn't mind marijuana. We were giving marijuana um, at 11 hallucinogens <coughs> listed on the proposal. And the only one that they, the proposal kept on coming back for was LSD. Yeah. They said, oh, you're going to use LSD, you've got to do a follow-up. You've got to do a 90-day follow-up. You've got to do a, uh, a year-and-a-half follow-up. 30-year follow-up. They didn't care about the mescaline. They didn't care about the psilocybin. They didn't care about ketamine. Which we can give to children, and uh, it's the only drug that we can give to children without any uh, formal, uh, any hallucinogen that we can give to children without any formal studies. Oh, why is that? Why are they so Because it's a normal surgical anesthetic yes, given yeah. to uh, hospital patients. Yeah. Excuse me, me another thing. We're talking about historical uh, <coughs> moments. Yeah, right. <coughs> the article that Murray and uh, Frank wrote inside of America. And again, at another level, was uh, one of the Everest points in all this. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for yes, that, Mark. Indeed. And a man who, I, who may come today, who really deserves a, a great deal of consideration in all this, is Nicholas Purcell. And he may come a little later. He said he was going to be here. Nick is a remarkable man, very quiet, and in his own way, uh, went to Europe, the very beginning of all this, and I suspect in writing the book that he may have been the very first person to use LSD in America, although that's often accredited to Wrinkle in, yes, in, in, in Boston. And uh, the reason is that he was sitting, you know, he's a Hungarian, and Hungarians can get into rather interesting places. And he uh, uh, was talking to, to Stoll, the young Stoll, who he said, uh, so he told me, said, by the way, Nick, I know they talk Hungarian a lot, he said, there's a few things I think you ought to try, and he reached into his waistcoat pocket and took out a few vials, and then, here, when you get a chance, he said, you may want to try that. And that was before, uh, to my knowledge, before Wrinkle ever got the material, and before they set up a regular program for its distribution in America. So if Nick comes later, I, I certainly would 
would love to see him won and appreciate whatever. This is like a Grammy Award session. It really is. But no, I, I think <laughs> that now Nick, Nick uh, Sid, you you saw Nick when he was first starting, didn't you? And he had the material before you did, didn't he? Yes. He, he did, published yeah. an article in the yeah. archives of General Psychiatry yeah. very early. Yeah. And then there were, there were the first article about, about Seventh or Eighth in the Sandoz bibliography were attributed to two Americans named Bush and Johnson yes, of course. in the middle in middle America, who just about never showed up anywhere else. And I called Bush and I said, "Is there really such a person?" You know, and he said, "Yeah." He said, "I'm 70 years old, having a marvelous time." I said. Hey, I said, did you realize you were the first person to publish in an American journal on LSD? He said, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I he, said, <laughs> he came to some of the Macy Foundation uh, uh, conferences, yeah, yeah, you remember. Yeah, you were there, yeah, I think. Yeah. And so I said, how did you get on to it? He said, I don't know. We got the idea that if we had a good delirium going, yeah, he yeah. said, we may shake things up a bit, you know. <laughs> he said, and Johnson and I, I said, where did you get? Nineteen fourteen fifty. He said, "Oh, we just sent the sandals." <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, you, you, know, you, you know Albert's story about that, don't you? About the sandal salesman yeah. and LSD. Do you know yeah. that story? Well, but Albert, Albert says that, that uh, for many years, last time I saw him, he said the sandal salesman would come to him and say, "When are you going to get something like LSD?" <laughs> <laughs> when, when we used to go out for Sanders, you know, it's quite a small, very respectable Swiss company, and they bring their wares along, and no one would show much interest. But after LSD, when the Sanders salesmen appear, people would say, "You're the people who made LSD," and they would then pay great attention to everyone and their products. And the salesman looked upon this as being the greatest sales innovation that Sanders ever made. <laughs> Well, there's another side to that story. When I spoke to Burrell, who was the vice president in charge of public affairs in Hanover, I said to him, I, no, the usual subject about what happened to LSD, he said, hell, the reason we gave it up, he said, because we couldn't sell it. <laughs> But he simply said, he 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 he said, 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 and he said, uh, Tim had a twinkle in his eye, you know, he looked like a real picaresque, you know, Spanish-Irish kind of a guy. And he said, he said, what, uh, what's that? And Tim said, well, that's my direct line to the president. <laughs> <laughs> so, so probably, uh, that was when he was square haircut, you know, and all that stuff, you know. <laughs> And so Rob said, is it there? He said, yeah. He said, what would you like to hear from the president? So, so Rob said, he, he said, he said, how about no school tomorrow? <laughs> so he said, sure. And he pulls the hearing day on, he puts it in front of him and he said, President Johnson? Yes, yes, yes. He said, Tim Leary here, saying to Janiger. Yes, he said, by the way, he said, the young man here, he said, Rob, he said, he would rather there was no school tomorrow. <laughs> and the next day was a holiday. <laughs> and he said, and Robbie, and for the most Rob said, is that spell ever going to come back? <laughs> And I remember old Al Hubbard coming up to the house and he, with his leather pouch, you know, he used to be the, he rode the circuit boy, and he opened up his leather pouch and then it was all the wampum and all the great stuff he had, and he was trading off, well, he said, what do we have here for the month now, Al? And Al said, well, we've got this and that, now, something new's coming up, how would you like a little of that? Yeah, I remember. Oh, God, we were waiting for you. Right. We were waiting for you like a little lady on the prairie, waiting for the Godline to see his roadbug catalog. Well, I did the best I could with the tools I had. I know, you, you, you had some good primitive trade, Al. Al, what did you do with that million-dollar check that you carried around with you? 
You had a check you showed me for one million dollars. It was the most money I'd ever seen on a check in my life. Well, that's the most I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's cost me and other people a lot of money since then. Listen, I'm not telling tales out because I know you've shown it to others as well as myself. Well, I think probably pretty kind of problems, but I had. I got, finally got down to a hundred thousand dollars. And then, of course, they all went away. This, all went away. this all cost a lot of money because there was a. There was no bills to anyone to those anyone except those in charge for themselves. Mm -hmm. That was only a couple of hospitals mm -hmm. and two or three mm -hmm. clinics. But uh, all it cost a lot of money. Yeah. Was it before inflation or after? <laughs> what? Well, when, when, when Sid wrote his paper well, the on the complications, <laughs> you remember that? And you sent us a questionnaire about, you know, that was the beginning of trying to assess what, you know, how, what kind of care we should take. And I got the paper and I was thinking, uh, what on earth went wrong? And we had a great number of people. But there was one, uh, which I didn't put on that form, Sid, and I have to tell you, one of our people got loose. And I, I don't know, I have to tell you this now. And we couldn't find him, and this was Wilshire Boulevard. Can you imagine running, a, and we thought we had the thing well worked out, and the usual babysitter, you know, the usual routine. And he was gone down Wilshire Boulevard. And we were looking all over, and I thought, my God, if this fellow doesn't come to light, we're in bad, bad shape. So I was coming back to the office and feeling kind of glum about it, when suddenly I hear somebody whistling. And I look around, and I don't see anything. I look around, nobody whistling, whistling, and there was a patient sitting up in a tree. <laughs> and I, I said, what are you doing up there? He said, it's wonderful up there. I said, well, now, don't do anything rash. I said, we'll come again. Oh, no, no. He said, I'll fly right down and see you. I said, no, you won't. <laughs> and we had to climb the tree and inch over inch bring him down off the tree. And thank God for that, I'll tell you. You should have joined him in the tree. <laughs> Well, you've been in the tree ever since. Siri? You've been through that one before. Yeah, you're flying out of your tree. Something ought to be said about the check that Al was waving around here. Because it's taken a long time, but it was just a few days ago that the last steps were taken to see that all the money was repaid. But it was a long battle, but all the money went back to its source. Is that right? That's that's right. Uh, <laughs> which one was that, Larry? Oh, don't you remember this? Oh, you had several of them. <laughs> 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 Thank God I didn't have to get involved in the others. Funny, you know, Funny I must say to Al's credit that he never made a lot of money selling that stuff at all. He, he, was, he was a great trader, though. He'd say, how about a little... Almost pure cannabis, uh, you know, tetrahydrocannabinol. In those days, you had it was kind of viscous, you know, oil. Remember that stuff in tubes? Yeah. yeah, he, yeah. Said, now, what have you, he said, what have you got to offer? <laughs> well, now, how do, you, how do you figure this belong business, Byron? What? Run back to where it belonged. How do you figure it? From the source. The person who furnished the money got it back. How? <laughs> well... You know how, but it's not a matter for pub. I don't think it's a matter for public record. They're among friends. Only Harry is recording it. Ten million dollars. One other um, change in life. Uh, in connection with LSD, or at least uh, LSD contributed mightily, I think, was the whole uh, upsurge in the study of the chemistry of the brain. I think that had a lot to do with it, and uh, although it may have happened, I think it, uh, LSD accelerated it. Yeah, it's interesting that that was, in, in writing the book, that's part of it that I think the clinicians somehow, if not disdain that, at least somehow that doesn't seem to be an area of, of terrible concern to them and, and and mainly in terms of the uh, of what I think is this equally important impact of LSD which was on accelerating the entire notion of the neurochemistry of the brain and how the you know the brain processes emotion and so we're trying to include that and it was it's going to take a whole other group of people to look at that more critically but I think as you say that chapter is most importantly well worth written entirely I think it was uh, 
LSD with serotonin, which in turn gave rise perhaps to the early hypotheses of, you know, of the uh, brain amines in relation to affective disorders. That was a direct chain, uh, in large extent. Yeah. I think yeah. LSD probably had the most effect on the, on the larger population that has never even taken it. The, the marginal participation in the, in the countercultural movement, which yeah. I attribute largely to LSD. I'm not attributed necessarily, but it was, in, I think, a necessary condition. Bill, when we were running, Bill, when we were running our subjects, about the third or fourth subject was an artist, and he saw a Kachina doll that was sitting on the shelf, and he said. I must draw something. I've got to look at something. I've got to paint it. So we took the, the doll off the shelf, and he began to sketch it, and you know, in sort of haphazard ways you do, you know, he couldn't control it very well. And when he was through with the experience, he said, this is the most important artistic experience that I've ever had. He said, do you mind if I tell other artists about it? Well, we weren't quite prepared for this. I, I had no idea that the artist, you know, is going to be any more affected than anyone else. And he then began to bring in his friends. And before long, it was almost as if the entire project would be inundated with artists. That's how completely eager and, and absolutely interested they were in taking it. And we had to really limit the number of artists. So at least from their point of view, and then we have a very elaborate record of what, what, uh, what the artist had said and the, the follow-up, as you know, because you used some of that data. And the artist seemed to derive an enormous amount of, of, of interest and, and of help from the experience with LSD, among all the others. The worst reactors we had were the psychiatrists, <laughs> and, the, and the second were the ministers. I mean, they were, they, they, were, they were not, I mean, you know, there was nothing gravely serious, but they were, they, they didn't have good reactions very often, these guys just ministers. And the, the two or three rabbis and several, uh, we had, I think, two Catholic priests. But the general artists had more fun than the ministers, don't they? Just well, they may, they, they may have more fun, but then we're going back to your original thesis. They do more good, then. They move even race farther ahead. Artists do, I think. Well, uh, psychedelic art is still something that has to be evaluated. It's, it's, a, it's an unproven thing, in a way. But we do know that we have a hundred pairs of the artists painting the doll prior and painting it afterwards at a time when they had no preconceived notion. Well, some, of course, was accumulating, but not very rapidly. And so we now are processing these pairs to see uh, uh, what can be done or how these people handle it under the drug. And if they took it a number of times, they, had it, they developed a, a facility so they could deal with it and they could paint fairly decently under it. You know? yeah, that one with the leaf. Yeah, that one with the leaf. An old friend of mine sent me a copy yeah. of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to understand that a little better yeah. uh, with the doll. You say you yeah. first had them painted before they'd taken LSD yeah. and then during. Yes. And how about, did you do any after? Yes. There was some we did after, yeah. Because, yeah. I'd be interested there whether they felt that they had some enhanced ability afterward, well, but they, uh, yeah. Well, what was improved wasn't their artistic ability, by no means. It was just the, this whole sense of opening up, you know, and having more choices and being able to see things uh, uh, much more... Uh, Many more permutations and ideas. Would you all like to have some something to eat? Uh, and uh, we've got a table full of stuff. Yeah. Well, we we really. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. 
I had to smile when, near the end of this discussion, we heard Myron Stolaroff and Al Hubbard kind of getting after one another a bit about some money, some money that Myron wound up paying for a debt that Hubbard had incurred. <laughs> I can actually remember uh, quite a few conversations that I had with Myron when he would wonder how it was that Al Hubbard had been able to get him to pay for things that Al committed them to without first asking Myron about. And while Hubbard was actually Myron's mentor, and Myron truly loved him, I think that it's safe to say that at times this was closer to a love-hate relationship, <laughs> at least sometimes. But it was one that eventually turned out peaceful, I should add. In fact, Al Hubbard's ashes were eventually scattered on Myron's little place in the high desert, not far from the Death Valley site that was Hubbard's favorite place to do acid. Actually, it was that piece of property that for a while came between Al and Myron, with Myron, as he told it to me, eventually just saying the hell with trying to work out a deal with Al to jointly purchase the property, and so Myron just went ahead and bought it on his own. But as it turned out, that little red house on that land became the site of a significant amount of psychedelic research, reports of which may be found in the back of Sasha Shulgin's books, Peak Hall and Tea Call. So in his own mysterious way, it seems that Captain L. Hubbard's work continued long after his death, with his ashes, quite literally, under the feet of the next generation of psychedelic researchers. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>